All right, I'm Jeffrey Rickman, and this is a, a channel I put together called Plain Spoken. It's a, a show that I do where uh, sometimes I do some personal news commentary, but other times I, I interview people that I find interesting or worthy for different reasons. I've been doing a, a series on African United Methodist voices uh, because uh, African United Methodism is just playing a, a larger and larger role in the denomination, as it should. Um, but uh, today I'm, I'm joined by an American uh, I, I would call him a friend. I might not should feel that that close to him, but Odell uh, has has been active in the United Methodist Church for some time. Odell Horn, um, I've been following him for some time. He's uh, the head of the United Methodist Men in North Georgia Annual Conference. Um, Odell, I haven't told you this personally yet, but ever since I first discovered you a couple years ago, it just feels to me like you and I are on a similar wavelength. Like you just you don't have time for lies. Uh, or or beating around the bush. You want to speak truth. You want to seek truth with other truth seekers, but you don't want to participate in, in um, the things we say that, that give false comfort or hope. Um, and so I, I feel a kinship with you. I feel like uh, that's what John Wesley was like as well. I, I feel like the, the, the great leaders of the church have always been predisposed in that dis- direction. Um, so I've, I've noticed Odell commenting on the United Methodist Church and global Methodism. Uh, race is a, a particular um, area of not just concern, but you've taken the time to, to learn a lot, read a lot. Um, you're an informed person on this. You call yourself a critical race theorist. Um, and so I, I want to talk to you about that sometime. I don't think that's today's topic. And it's not because—I find that— I disagree with all the critical race theorists I read, except for you. And then I hear I watched the video of you this morning talking about how General Conference 2024 is going to be a a referendum on the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant heritage of United Methodism. And at the end, <laughs> spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't watched it, you just come straight out and say anyone whose primary theolo- I'm putting it in my own language primary theological frame of reference comes from 18th century German liberal theology, textual criticism, is a racist. Um, and so that's that's the United Methodist Church, that's racism, period. Um, and so I, you know, you, you, you did all the hard work to lay it out before then. It was like a, I don't know, 15, 16 minute video. Um, but I, I, I appreciate someone who has the patience for making a case and then speaking very clearly about the implications of the case made. So that's that's a that's a rare thing in academia. Now you are you are currently getting a degree. You're in a degree program, aren't you? Yes, I'm pursuing a doctorate degree in contextual theology. It was known as Evangelical Theological Seminary up until June. Um, in Myerstown, Pennsylvania. It is now part of Kairos University. So is that a, you do primarily your engagement with the, the university is online? That is correct. How far are you into your program? I am in the dissertation writing phase. Uh, I am about 24 pages in. Of how many total you think? 200. <laughs> I thought I would, um, so you know where I'm coming from. I thought I would show you some of the, I, I went to Boston University School of Theology. I thought I would show you a couple of books they had me read because 
one of the things we're going to talk about today is um, United Methodist Universities and the implicit, um, you might say racism, I would say uh, ethnocentrism of the um, uh, United Methodist Seminary environment. And I, I took I took a couple of courses in ten, so Boston University did not offer this course natively. They partnered with Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary, which uh, they had, an, and I, I wish I could remember which one he was. My instructor was excellent. Um, he wrote this, oh man, it's heavy, Atlas of Global Christianity. And uh, it, it's just a tome, and it had all these maps and graphics and stats that were accurate 12, 13 years ago when I was in seminary, just showing uh, majority world Christianity is not WASP. It is uh, generally people of color in the Southern Hemisphere, um, Eastern Orthodoxy, uh, Roman Catholicism, charismatic uh, Christianity. Um, all things outside of my wheelhouse. And so that was a point at which I was like, I need to get much more familiar with this stuff. Um, the other one that I, I was influenced by in seminary is called Christianity is a World Religion, and it's um, just a survey of each continent, what, what Christianity looks like on each continent. And then as you're aware of, what you choose to speak about is just as important as what you choose not to speak about. And so this spoke much more about liberation theology, you know, as you're talking about, your concern is uh, African and Asian voices in the historic church, and it acknowledges those uh, that Christianity is in those continents, but it only acknowledges liberal strains of theology that are, are currently there. Um, and of course, I just made a generalization. There are exceptions in the book. But I also, I didn't know if I'd find a, uh, an opportunity to do this, but uh, this, this thing I watched of you this morning, you talked about how a lot of the early influential voices within the early church were North African, uh, whether they be from Antioch or Carthage, uh, places of Egypt, Hippo. Um, this book, have you ever seen this book? This is The Patient Ferment of the Early Church. No, I have not. This book uh, ruined me uh, in a good way. Uh, it's about the early church, and it talks about the primary voice influencing the, the ethos of the early church being uh, Cyprian of Carthage, who was mm -hmm. uh, a, a black man, and um, talked about how it, it ends, spoiler alert, with um, Augustine kind of undoing his heritage, but it talks about how for three centuries the prevalent ethos of the church was not an impatience to save the world, but a patient trust in God's sovereignty. And... Mm -hmm. um, and what that looks like today if we were to reclaim that. And so it's, it's ruined my theology of evangelism and mm -hmm. um, oh, uh, marketing and how, how we do church. And it's been a real blessing to me, but it's made me kind of a fish out of water in the United Methodist denomination, which is very much influenced by uh, marketing and demographics and affinity groups and, and all of these church growth strategies. Um, so we'll 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 see how I I go. Um, so that's 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 so you know how to uh, enlighten me. You know, kind of the foundation that's been laid with me. The stuff mm -hmm. I was curious about with you. You you currently you're in this this degree program. Say say the the field you're in again. Contextual theology. Contextual theology is it limited to Christianity? 
That is correct. Okay, great. And then you just study the way that Christianity is made real in different um, ethnic and cultural contexts around the globe. Well, more yes, okay. uh, but more specifically, um, I jumped from a master's degree in African American study, African and African American studies, mm-hmm. from Clark Atlanta University, which is a historically black university, okay. to theology. And this was the only program that was accredited that the Association of Theological Schools would allow me to do so. And so this was the only program, the contextual theology program at at Evangelical Theological Seminary, or as they call it in Pennsylvania, Evangelical Theological Seminary, that would allow me to jump from African-American studies to contextual theology. Okay, so you found a way just barely. Yes. Okay, okay. And so you've been on this path. When did you start on your master's? Uh, I finished the master's degree in 2003. Okay, okay. So, um, and then you have uh, uh, you have a career currently. You're at Atlanta Public Library uh, as a librarian? Uh, a library assistant. Okay, cool. And you've been there how long? I've been there uh, six years. The the goal uh, was working for the state of Georgia in human services. I've been basically working since I graduated, Okay. Uh, but not necessarily in African-American studies. Uh, so the goal in switching to Atlanta Public Library System was to get at the Auburn Avenue Research Library, which is probably the second largest African-American research library in the nation. Okay. Wow. And then you, you want to use that as uh, you just like serving people and educating people, or do you have special projects that you want to be in close proximity to a library for? Uh, just educational purposes. Okay. Um, and then also just looking at the resources. Uh, I, this I sort of came up on this program mm-hmm. at Evangelical Theological Seminary. I was not looking necessarily to do a doctorate degree. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I was hearing from black millennials, um, black folks who are in the millennial generation Mm -hmm. was that Christianity is the white man's religion. Mm. And I had to pause because in the 1990s, we went through this process of who the Africans were in the Bible. Yeah. And so I was trying to figure out why they didn't, I apologize. The sun is now up directly in my face. (laughs) Yeah. You're kind of washed (laughs) out. (laughs) It's all right. Um, but I had to figure out why they missed this lesson Uh and why they did not learn who the, the richness of African Christianity. So I had to go and pursue a doctorate degree to make sure that I was able to teach so that we didn't get misinformed information, at least in the black community as to uh, what Christianity is. (laughs) So, okay. We can cut this out if you don't want to talk about it, but it seems to me that, um, the same ideology that leads to BLM leads to uh, this kind of racist division of white people live this way, black people live this way, this kind of race essentialism. So white people have Christianity, they show up on time, they like the written law, they, uh, they, uh, all these things that, that we would associate with just being functional are white, and then black people we have our own way of doing things. We don't need their religion. We don't need their lifestyle. There doesn't need to be any cultural overlap. In fact, if they take anything of ours, that's cultural appropriation. 
We need mm-hmm. to we need to separate. And so that's how I've interpreted not just Christianity is white, but academia is white, or uh, being a straight-laced law-abiding citizen is, is white. I just think that leads to a lot of division and mi- misery and, and uh, prolonging uh, racial differences and disparity between us. And I've, I've associated a lot of that with uh, critical race theory, which my understanding is that um, a key tenet of it is, is race essentialism and uh, corporate identity. Uh, or what, what's what's the term? Group identity being more important than individual identity, and so I'm I'm genuinely surprised when you call yourself a critical race theorist, and yet I would assume you and I see the same problems, uh, and maybe it could be that we have different answers about what's to be done about that. Um, but the project that you're involved in is reclaiming, saying, "Hey, Christianity is a black faith." All right, in the beginning. There weren't many white folks around. This was a, a black and black brown people thing. Black people created a lot of the doctrine and theology that is foundational and fundamental to Christianity. Um, but you're also not saying this is a black and brown people thing only. You're just saying we need to take a step back from the way that w- Europeans in particular kind of t- tried to take it over. W- would you agree with all of that or some of that, or what would you say to any of that? Yeah, I would agree with some of that, particularly the last part. Um, I clearly, um, as uh, I'm getting ready to write an article uh, to present it or a paper to be presented at the American Academy of Religion Conference in San Antonio uh, this fall, I'm arguing that that exact point that the uh, Africans and Asians were the folks who are primarily the ones who were the antagonists as well as the protagonists at the Council of Nicaea. Um, Europeans were present, but this is not exclusive to black and brown. Um, And so that Christianity from its outset was global. What we see is when Nero blamed the Christians for the great fire in Rome, Mm -hmm. the Christians were expelled in the year 64. Mm -hmm. Um, when the Jews started a rebellion in Jerusalem in the year 66, the Romans squashed that rebellion in the year 70 and burned the temple to Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. What we see clearly by the year 70, that Rome and Jerusalem were not the centers of Christianity that they had been for the first three centuries of first three decades, I should say, of the Christian faith Mm -hmm. that Clearly, by the year 70, um, there was a transition towards Alexandria and Antioch. Now, that wouldn't be realized until the year 200 or after year 200. But it clearly, and some would argue even Carthage in the fourth century, this clearly was not just Greeks and Romans who were in Alexandria and Antioch and Carthage, but these were some indigenous folk. So that's what I'm, uh, John Wesley was reading the third, fourth, fifth century Africans and Asians. And so that's basically the genesis of my argument is that we're not just reading 19th century. Right. German historical critical theologians. Yeah. Um, and that if we are actually reading the, the, what John Wesley was reading, we should be reading Athanasius 
and Augustine and the Cappadocian fathers, as well as John Christosom. And we should acknowledge that none of these folks, not only did they live in Europe, um, they weren't even recognized as what we would call Europeans right. um, during yeah. that time period. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, the what I see clearly with, I've had to correct some black millennials on as it regards to uh, race essentialism is that, um, that, well, let me, let me say it like this. There's a difference between being a black person at a black university mm -hmm. and being a black person at a white university. Sure. Yeah. We don't have, I don't want to say that we don't have race essentialism at black universities because we do. Mm -hmm. That is not the majority. Um, that is even in African-American studies, uh, in race essentialism, uh, I wouldn't say that's the majority in African-American studies. Yeah. I think there is that element there. Mm -hmm. Um, but it just is not the, the, there is an engagement with white scholars in African-American studies, because if I'm, I'm going to be honest with you, um, if I'm doing the research on Africa, a lot of the folks who are doing that research are white folk. Right. Yeah. Um, so I don't think there's this necessarily this race essentialism amongst the majority of folk in African-American studies. Now, I would disagree that critical race theory only deals with laws. Um, anything dealing with culture and appropriation, that might be critical theory. Yeah. But critical race theory is really only dealing with laws that have been passed in the United States to limit African Americans and their movement, their freedoms, whatever. Sure, sure. Um, so that's that's where I would differ. Yeah, that's it's it's such a big messy conversation because there are a lot of different people who have different definitions of what CRT mm -hmm. is, and there are people on both sides who want to conflate it with something much larger than uh, uh, a more technical legal definition. All right, so you are uh, uh, a person concerned with uh, the global south, well, but also Asia, uh, who's located within a mainline Protestant uh, denomination in America that's 94% white and comfortably so, even though we give a lot of lip service to uh, diversity is our strength, and we have a lot of programs mm -hmm. for black people and Latinos, and we focused on minorities. Um, most of the most of the Africans with whom I speak just think we're kind of silly, uh, and I don't know how many of, of the interviews that you've seen. They're very respectful towards me. Very few just come out and say, you Americans are silly, but um, I, I have no idea. I have, I have a couple black friends that are United Methodist clergy. And they're just happy to stay in their corner. They don't want to deal with the larger denominational. You you are really quite unique. You're not clergy. You're laity, but you've taken a leadership position within the denomination. Uh, you're probably the most vocal United Methodist men's leader I'm aware of. You've chosen to stick it out with the United Methodist Church. So if you could speak to what what brought you into the denomination, and then why have you stuck it out this far with 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 the crew so thank you for that question let me first correct i am as of uh june 30th no longer the president of the north georgia conference united methodist men as of this uh, last six months ago okay, okay. right my two-year term ended okay uh, i am still um 
in the United Methodist, man. I am right now the Central North District president, which is encompasses the city of Atlanta, okay. basically. Okay. And Fulton, Fulton County and Clayton County. Okay. Um, I came to uh, Clark Atlanta University is a United Methodist institution. Mm -hmm. And when I did work study, uh, I did work study as a graduate student. None of the under the undergraduates got the choice for where they wanted to go for work study. None of them chose the chaplain's office. So when it came to the graduate students who were doing work study, we got the um, the last pickings and and the chaplain's office came uh, on my plate. So I worked under Paul Easley and Herbert Marbury, who is it, now at this is an undergrad. Uh, this was in graduate school. Oh, this is in grad school. This is in the early 2000s. Right. Okay. So that's how I was introduced to United Methodism. Um, I, I got to be honest with you, I wasn't impressed. <laughs> and um, somehow we still got you. Yeah. Uh, and that was because uh, when I returned to, after graduating, I came back to Atlanta and I started working at the United Methodist Children's Home. And that's when I saw a different side of the United Methodist Church. And the reason why I say I wasn't impressed, I was a part of Campus Crusade for Christ while I was at Clark Atlanta. And Campus Crusade for Christ uh, at a black college was much more dynamic than the United Methodist student movement was okay. at Clark Atlanta. Mm -hmm. So it just, as a matter of fact, the United Methodist student movement had a conference at Clark Atlanta in 2000. And I worked that conference and I just was, it was, eh, it was whole home to mm -hmm. me mm -hmm. in comparison to the black campus ministry of, of Campus Crusade for Christ. Um, and it was through Campus Crusade for Christ that I went to Ethiopia twice on a mission trip. Um, and our theme was a people of color serving a world of color. And so I got the opportunity to go to Ethiopia. We were supposed to do missionary work However, there were student protests in Ethiopia and the government cracked down. So we really didn't do any missionary work. We just did some encouraging of the Christians who were at Arat Kilo, which is the main campus of Addis Ababa University. Um, but that's where my engagement in this topic came. It was through being involved in Campus Crusade for Christ that I was able to get into Africa and to study, you know, I went to the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, but I really wasn't impressed with the United Methodist Church until I started working at the United Methodist Children's Home. And then some of the young men at the Children's Home, uh, there had been a relationship with one of the churches in Atlanta with the United Methodist Children's Home. And so some of the young men wanted to go to church and that was the church that they went to. And uh, it was very good. Uh, this was, again, like your uh, black pastors, friends who just want to stay in their corner. Mm -hmm. When you do that, you're able to focus on ministry and mission. And I mean, it was really, really good. Mm. And I stayed there for about two years. And then a church uh, was going to be planted and it was Impact Church. And I've been at Impact Church since the very first Sunday, which is January of 2007. And it's been a good, good experience. So um, that's how I got engaged in, in this, in this process of being a United Methodist. It was just experiences along the way. And then, uh, I got engaged with being in the United Methodist men and, um, that's been beneficial. Tell me about impact. 
So Impact was a series of church plants by the North Georgia Conference, United Methodist Church in 2007. Uh, Quest Church in Augusta was another one, and there were several others. Uh, it let me let me state impact look a lot like chapel services at Clark Atlanta. Um, when Herbert Marbury was the chaplain, we had about at minimum average 300 college students in chapel, and chapel was voluntary. Amazing. Uh, it is an experience to go to school with undergraduate and graduate students mm -hmm. between the ages of 18 to 34. And uh, even if it's just one hour on a Sunday morning, um, students voluntarily came. Then when you graduate to go out and to the churches and you might be the only person of your generation or there might be two or three of you as opposed to 300, yeah, that's not really something most folk in that age group want to see. So right. when Impact Church started, it really was that 18 to 34 year old demographic. Mm -hmm. uh, and they started first Sunday, we started out with 500 people. Mm. And we've been, we, I don't think we've ever dropped below 500 um, since we started. So it's been very, and was built on small groups. Yeah. It was built on that John Wesley. Now, it wasn't the class band or um, uh, the band meetings or the class meetings. It was just small groups. Yeah. And that's really what built Impact Church. Has it had the same pastoral leadership the whole time? Yeah. Olu Brown just retired in June. Uh, and Paul Thibodeau is now the current pastor. Okay. Paul has been there since 2017. But those have been the only two lead pastors. Would you would you that. characterize it as uh, multiracial or primarily black church? It's uh, it was constant is from its constitution was a, a planted as a black church. Okay, okay. Uh, now it is multiracial, okay. but it is is predominantly black church. Interesting. Okay, okay. Yeah, I'd I'd wondered. So if if we had a leader like you in Oklahoma, I'm pretty sure it would be awkward. You know, I'm I'm pretty sure. We have had black dynamic leadership in the conference before. They didn't stay, you know. So it's just it, and it's um, leadership has said, "Man, I hope I don't get in trouble for this." I might edit it out, but they've just said, "We want black leaders. We want we want representation for minorities." But the 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 problem, which I think you well, it's not a problem, but the reality, which I think you highlight, is generally speaking, minorities do not find liberal theology very compelling. They, um, and maybe maybe that's a good jumping off point um, to the the general topic we wanted to discuss today. But um, my parents are are both United Methodist clergy retired. They went mm -hmm. to seminary at Perkins, and by their own admission, their Christian doctrine and theology instruction began with the Enlightenment in Europe. That's where they began. You know, they were concerned only with theology of the last 400 years, those German scholars. Um, I, on the other hand, and I don't want to badmouth Boston, but they, they, they wanted to do the same thing. But the, the problem was that I read too much history and, and early doctrine before that. And for me, the feeling was, 
the first thousand years of doctrine in the church really felt like eating meat. You know, whenever I'm reading scripture and then I'm reading the early church fathers, it feels like I'm reading stuff in the same genre. You know, scripture is obviously preeminent and should discount anything else. But but once it gets to European uh, enlightenment thought, it just it, it feels more like milk or more it just kind of it's not based on that solid foundation. And I, I, there are probably smarter ways to say that. If, well, so the meaner way I would say that is it feels to me that a lot of modern liberal theology is counterfeit, that it, 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 it uses a lot of the same terminology, but it, it usually, especially when postmodernism comes along, they often mean opposite things of what traditional Orthodox uh, Christians would mean. Here's, here's a question I wonder at. Um, it seems to me that you would acknowledge a, a, a kinship or a friendship between African and Asian believers in, in uh, having more firmly rooted doctrine. Do you feel like American Anglo-conservatives are largely rooted in that as well, or does it feel to you as though they are rooted in something else that resembles a, a, a traditional uh, orthodox faith, but is not really tapped in the way that that uh, developing world or, or um, majority world Christians would be? Um, I would definitely say uh, unknowingly, a lot of the uh, Anglo, American Anglo Christians, as you stated, are tapped into something that resembles orthodoxy. And I see clearly a movement towards orthodoxy. Mm-hmm that wasn't present, say, even during the Billy Graham era or the Jerry Falwell era. Like there is a movement towards orthodoxy okay. amongst American conservatives. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say that because most of the seminaries in the United States, Protestant seminaries mm-hmm. of the United States, start with the Reformation it, it isn't actually, it's, it may be akin to, but it's not the same as what the, uh, what we see now. Uh, I'm from Rochester, New York. Okay. What we see now is Coptic and Ethiopian Orthodox churches being built in Rochester, New York. Is that so? That we, I first saw a Coptic Orthodox church being built in the suburbs in the 1980s. When I went back a couple of years ago, I, I see now Coptic Orthodox churches being built in downtown Rochester, actually not being built. It was a Catholic church that is closed. And then the Coptic Orthodox came in and took it over. Um, We're seeing more of an acknowledgement of Coptic or just Orthodoxy period, not necessarily Coptic. Mm -hmm. Uh, And amongst conservatives, at least in the academy, than, than previous I think in previous generations. Now, let me, that's a general overgeneralization mm-hmm. because there has been documentation along the way in Protestantism, but these are mainly elective courses. Yeah. These aren't the required courses. Right. Yeah. 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 And the, the concern for today's conversation was particular to seminaries, United Methodist seminaries. We've got the 13 official seminaries, and we've got, uh, what, 100 others approved by the Senate? I don't, I don't know that number. But um, 
generally speaking, there is a, a core course load that that only covers certain things at the expense of other things. Um, would it would it be fair to say? Well, okay. Tell us first before your conclusions. How how did you how did you study this particular topic? How how did you survey the course the mandatory course offerings for United Methodist Seminaries? So here's what I basically did. Um, once once I got to seminary at Evangelical Theological Seminary, and we started talking about uh, we again this is folks. This program is primarily for folks who are don't have a I have a excuse me I have a graduate certificate in biblical studies mm -hmm. from Bethel Theological Seminary. Okay. So you had to have some sort of religion biblical studies theological training to get into this program even if you weren't degreed. Uh, so when we got to the doctorate program at Evangelical Theological Seminary, you know you start with church history one or that type of. So you get to talking about uh, the history of Christianity. Mm -hmm. And even though it's um, it wasn't church history, one, it was just more so the history of Christianity, even though it was Protestant Reformation heavy, there were a lot of folks in that program who knew about the early church. Okay. Now, they may not have identified who was Asian, who was African, who was European, but mm -hmm. these folk knew. Right. And so you get into these conversations. Yeah. Your question about how I got to this point of discerning United Methodist, I was introduced to Kent Millard. I'm a part of the delegation of General Conference for North Georgia. Mm -hmm. And Kent Millard, um, oh my goodness, Wesleyan Covenant Association. I cannot think of his name now. Keith Boyette. Yeah. Was, yeah. And um, one other lady came and they spoke to the North Georgia Conference uh, United Methodist delegation at the uh, General Board of Global Ministries headquarters in Atlanta. Um, and so they began, they, they were explaining, now this was prior to the protocol for separation and, right. or whatever whatever that title was. It was a long protocol. title, yeah. Um, but they gave a, a, a traditional, a centrist and a liberal view of the future of the United Methodist Church. I thought it was very well uh, done. Yeah. And Kent Millard is the president at United Theological Seminary. So I began looking at United. And they were the only ones that were really heavily focused on historic Christianity. Yeah. I be And they say that on their webpage. So when they say so that... It doesn't seem like mm -hmm. a virtue signaling thing to you to justify a position that they already hold. It actually seems like an earnest appeal to the something real. That that's that's your personal assessment after having seen these people in action. Okay. That is correct. Okay. And then the you know the catalogs of the 13 seminaries are online. Yeah. So you can go to the United Methodist uh, the General Board of Higher Education and Ministry, you can go to the approved seminaries. And you can click each one and just go to the catalog. And I, I to be honest with you, you just do a couple key name searches: Augustine, Christosom, John Christosom. Um, you know, you picked Athanasius, mm -hmm. the Cappadocian Fathers. Mm -hmm. You do a Google search in the catalog or a search in the catalog of all thirteen. You're, you're not gonna Augustine. You'll come up with mm -hmm. the yeah. others. You won't. 
if you do that same search of Schleiermacher, Maltman, uh, Boltman, Boober, you're going to come up with a lot more hits. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good... So it wasn't an in-depth study so much as this was like, okay, here are the important theologians of different time periods. Let's see where they are in the catalog. I mean, it literally took me a half an hour to go through the 13 seminaries just to see where their priorities were. Yeah, yeah. Well, and even so, in thinking on my time in, in Boston, I'm not going to say that we never read primary sources with the, the early church fathers, but they were always done in survey courses in small chunks where they could be contextualized in a way the editors were comfortable with. Um, but there was, no, there was no textbook where we engaged in a prolonged sense, historic Christian doctrine. Um, I'm not gonna. I'm gonna take that back. There was a Christian doctrine course where we studied the evolution of different uh, doctrinal areas, say the the Trinity, where that's where I first got my sense of the starting place was much richer than the ending place. Where um, it seems to me, well, here's here's something I wanted to posit to you and get your response. I think you're totally right to say that John Wesley was was concerned to consult the early church and what we would today call the majority church and uh, believers in, uh, in, in other ethnic areas. But to say that he focused on those at the expense of Western voices is where I found myself wanting to push back a little bit um, because uh, I, I read some of the things that he wrote in response to John Locke. It seems to me that that mm -hmm. that Wesley really tried to be a jack of all trades theologically and to find a common thread of orthodoxy throughout the history of the church and not at the exclusion of of Western Christianity. Um, but it seems to me that he was open to some Enlightenment voices, but that um, oh heck, uh, who was the primary progressive voice, the the starting one, um, Kant. I don't. I don't think he would have liked. Kant. Yeah, I don't think he would have liked Kant. I don't think he would have gone the progressive direction. Um, a lot of liberals mm -hmm. read Wesley's stuff and see what they would call seeds of liberalism, but I, I think that that's kind of a disingenuous reading of him and what he offered. But uh, so, do you agree with my characterization of John uh, John Wesley trying to find a con a common chord of Christian orthodoxy that 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 is found in all ethnicities? And then do you think that was right or wrong of him? Or do you think that we really should have a, a prioritization of this doctrine is found in, in places with people of color, and this is white people doctrine, so this is automatically better. We should be much less pes or, uh, skeptical of this than of this, which is, uh, how do you feel about all that? So I, I clearly see what Wesley was doing, and this is what Oxford, the University of Oxford has done for centuries, mm -hmm. is that you start at the beginning and you don't skip, like you go through the process. Mm -hmm. And so Wesley just read what was taught. I don't think Wesley was unique in that aspect. I think what aspect Wesley was unique in is that he acknowledged it and he wrote about it. I don't think, you, I mean, if you went to Oxford or University of Cambridge, you were taught this. Mm -hmm. You, you know, just as though you were a Catholic uh, at a Catholic university or a Catholic seminary. Mm -hmm. You don't skip uh, from the New Testament to the Protestant Reformation. You go all the way through the process. Mm 
Mm -hmm. And so when Wesley's writing about orthodoxy, he's not, you know, he's just doing as he was trained. Like you just, you just write uh, from the New Testament to the current period. So if he's engaging Enlightenment voices, it's probably because these Enlightenment voices also were trained that you start from the New Testament and you just go through the um, antiquity and you go through the Middle Ages and you keep going to the current period. Mm -hmm. So I don't think Wesley was unique in his training. I think Wesley was unique in his writings. Now, let me go back and Tom Oden was one of the people who uh, I engaged personally. Right. Um, as well as in his writings of how Africa shaped the Christian mind. And then when I look at commentaries, I got a degree in African-American studies. I'm not really interested in what Matthew Henry has to say about the Bible. Yeah. So the I found the ancient Christian commentary on scripture to be very helpful uh, because these are people who are closer to the source. Now, there's some problems maybe with some of the um, some of these folk in terms of anti-Semitism, in terms of their views on women. Uh, but I, I got to be honest with you, I'm really not interested in European Enlightenment commentary on scripture because we have a saying in African-American studies. When you study black history, do not begin with slavery. So when I'm studying black history, I'm going back to Egypt Ethiopia, Nubia, and we would just trace that forward. Mm -hmm. So I do the same thing with Christianity. I don't, I don't skip from the New Testament to the Protestant Reformation. So the, I found the ancient Christian commentary on scripture to be very, very helpful in at least understanding how the early and the medieval Christian church thought about scripture. So when you look, when you characterize the Protestant Reformation, the impression I get is that you see it as somewhat divorced from that which came before. The, the language that I recall from John Calvin, Martin Luther, Ulrich Zwingli is, um, yes, there's a rejection of what came immediately before, but there is an interest not in creating something new, but reclaiming the, the foundational roots of the Christian faith. So a concern with the, the early church fathers. The way that I've, I've typically read this is that the Protestant Reformation was a legitimate venture and concern because Western Roman Catholicism really had gotten off base in, in some very problematic ways. But the problem was that liberalism used it as a vehicle, as, as a, um, uh, a, a fertile planting ground where, where they could just pretty much take over, as they effectively have done in the West. But that, that, that's not a, um, a statement on the Protestant Reformation so much as a statement on liberal ideology. Um, so do you marry the Protestant Reformation with liberal ideology, or do you see things more like I do, where the Protestant Reformation was a worthy venture, but it then it got co-opted by a hostile ideology? So I grew up, as I said, in Rochester, New York, and the majority of the churches in Rochester, as well as in New York State, are Catholic. Okay. Um, and so I went to Catholic school for a couple of years, and even if you go to public schools, you, there were folks in public schools who were studying, you know, world history, and they were studying 
they were devout Catholics. Uh, they were in public schools, but they they're the ones that educated me on the indulgences mm -hmm. that were introduced in the Catholic Church. So the Protestant Reformation, I agree, was absolutely a correction on Catholic theology that had gone awry mm -hmm. during the medieval period. Um, however, as I stated with, with John Wesley, he wasn't the only scholar who started from the New Testament and traced it all the way through. Mm -hmm. Martin Luther in particular was one, even Calvin, even though I think a lot of John Calvin's teaching and the reform movement in the United States in the 21st century has been twisted. Um, uh, Calvin was another one who studied the early church as well. So again, I don't think Wesley was unique. I think Wesley was one of the few who acknowledged this mm -hmm. and wrote about it, or well, not acknowledged it, but wrote about it, and we had those writings. Um, so we have the writings that Wesley wrote about why he disagreed with St. Augustine on this. Right. And so... I, I agree with you. I see the Protestant Reformation as something that was necessary for Christianity in Europe. Mm -hmm. I also see liberal theology as introduced by the University of Berlin and the Tübingen School in the 19th century as something that was different from Calvin and Luther and Wesley. Mm -hmm. Because I really do see theological liberalism as introduced by the University of Berlin and the Tübingen yeah, School yeah. as a critique of orthodoxy right, and a discredit of orthodoxy yeah. where I don't get that from Calvin, Luther, or Wesley. Yeah, yeah. Have you ever heard the rumor that John Wesley was actually baptized and ordained as an Eastern Orthodox priest? <laughs> so there is an Eastern, a Greek Orthodox priest here in Marietta, Georgia. Uh-huh which is the Northwest suburb. Mm -hmm. And he does an actual lecture on John Wesley. Like he, he is not a fan of the Protestant Reformation, okay. except for John Wesley. <laughs> and right. he, he acknowledged that John Wesley's understanding of Christian perfection mm -hmm. is nothing more than Eastern Orthodoxy theosis. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, I don't, I've never heard of that, what you just stated, but that's, yeah, that's something that came around to me a couple of years ago and I need to do the primary source research, but it's, it's something that's just kind of fun to, because what you just highlighted about John Wesley is true. You know, I have a lot of Baptist friends and my Baptist friends do not like Methodists, but they have to acknowledge John Wesley was a real Christian and pretty much every Christian tradition will acknowledge John Wesley was a real deal, even if his, mm -hmm. his, the, the people who follow in his footsteps are not very great nowadays. You can't discount the faith of John Wesley. Um, my answer has been just, you know, there's, there's a thing said by a lot of people today that you just can't go back in time. You can't put the toothpaste back in the bottle. And I don't subscribe to that. I really do think that if, if you just read the Bible a lot and read these thinkers a lot, that just becomes your reality. You know, that's what I've seen happen in my own life. And um, I, I think we're just often reluctant to say that we're just not interested in that, but we still want to call ourselves Christians. And, and I'm just one of these mean voices going, well, just stop calling yourself a Christian then. You know, if you're not interested in that, why do you want me to participate in your self-delusion? You know, that Christians are people who think that the Bible is, is literally God's Word, that it's, it's God's words of life, it, it is reliable, it is... It is um, 
foundational for salvation, and that there, there is a certain strand of people responding to that biblical witness and the truth of, of the Word that we can trust and, and put stock in. And we don't have to make up anything new. In fact, we should be very skeptical of anything new. Um, I think that that's an authentically Christian way of being in the world, but it's definitely not common in the West. And and one of the concerns, um, I know we weren't talking about, planning on talking about this today, but you're already familiar with a lot of the thinkers in the Global Methodist Church and the Wesleyan Covenant Association. One of the concerns that I've had is that that these these new strands that are being created are not effectively rebuking the poison seeds that the UMC swallowed. So it, it seems to me inevitable that 10, 15 years down the line, there's just going to be a, a replication of, of what we've seen in the United Methodist Church. Do you think that, that the people responsible for this new strand are keeping an eye on that and that it is that good guardrails are being established, or do you think that um, we would be right to be concerned about the future of the GMC if we don't have a, a firmer rebuke of subjectively oriented, materialistic, liberal theology? 